Good morning. Happy AGM Sunday. I don't know if I don't know if that's a thing, but this is my first one, so I, I'm I'm just going to call it a thing. <laughs> and so, because of uh, the AGM, um, you only have to put up with me for 20 minutes. Oh, you're like wow. Wow. <laughs> some of you are some of you are sighing relief. Some of you are sad. I know. It's, um, now the tricky part is I have about 20 minutes to unpack possibly one of the Bible's most misunderstood chapters, uh, James chapter two. So the reformer Martin Luther he had such a dislike for this particular section of scripture that he ended up calling the entire letter an epistle of straws. And he felt that it really had nothing to do with the nature of the gospel. Um, now, I'm sure in heaven, James and Martin Luther um, have kind of reconciled and they've hugged it out. Um, but just in case, if, if, if Mar- Martin, if you're listening today, I'm hoping to also um, correct you. <laughs> I know that's an ambitious goal, but I'm just saying Martin Luther was critical a piece of a piece of scripture. So I'm I'm going to defend the scripture, not Martin Luther. Amen. <laughs> so um, we're going to be reading from the latter half. I'm going to redeem myself later, I promise. Um, So we're going to be reading from the latter half of this passage. The first section um, has some really brilliant and beautiful things to say about uh, favoritism and how we approach those of maybe lower status in our uh, community. And then ends with this very beautiful phrase. It says, mercy triumphs over judgments kind of prodding at those who refuse to live out the law of love in their treatment of other people. God says that it is mercy that wins in the end. God's mercy toward us and our mercy toward others. And this is where we pick up this morning. But before we read from God's word, I'd love to just pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, This morning, would you illuminate our hearts? Would you illuminate our minds? Would we engage all parts of ourselves to hear what you would have us hear? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are saying and what you are doing in our midst. We pray the ancient prayer, Holy Spirit, come. Amen. So James 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. What that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In that same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to switch gears very momentarily. Are there any comic book fans in the house? Maybe movies or comic books themselves, like Marvel Cinematic Universe. Come on, there's, there's a handful of you. Okay, so um, there is this tension in the superhero genre where the superhero does not want to uh, reveal their true identity. And they often stop at nothing to protect that. Now, those of you who might have grown up with, you know, Superman and Batman and all these other ones, like, I mean, Superman is kind of the sloppiest because, like, it's like, take off your glasses and it's like, they don't know who you are. Like, anyway. Um, but, um, anyway, I think of a more like, like Spider-Man, for instance, got the full costume. And when he's not wearing his, when he's not wearing his outfit, he just wants to be Peter Parker, a high school student in Queens. Batman really does not want people to know who he is because um, they would then they would realize that he's this rich and famous socialite, Bruce Wayne. People would not leave him alone. But for many superheroes, they just can't keep up with the facade and it starts affecting different parts of their lives. And one of the more dramatic reveals was in the very first Iron Man movie in 2008. This was the one that started like the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe thing. And at the very end of the film, Tony Stark reveals to everyone in a very public press conference, he says, I am Iron Man. <laughs> Iron Man is Tony Stark. Tony Stark is Iron Man. The two are inseparable. Try as he might, he cannot separate the two. And he just realizes, I have to come out with it. I'm Iron Man. So too is faith and works. See what I did there? I did, it, it, <laughs> we got there eventually, right? <laughs> To use another metaphor that might make sense to you if you do not care about Marvel stuff, faith and works are like two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. In this passage, James, with like deep intensity, rails against the idea that we can live a disembodied, dualistic faith. In fact, this is how he ends this passage. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, is dead. And the word spirit there is not referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring um, to our soul, our breath, our life. And James, using numerous examples, says that we cannot live this way. In fact, to live this way is not to live at all. Faith without works is dead. Full stop, he says. And the stakes are pretty high here. James doesn't mince words. For him, this is an issue of salvation. And I know that some of you might be like, okay, where are you going with this, Justin? Just hang with me for a moment, please. The issue that he presents earlier in the section, um, if you read through the, the, all of James chapter 2, he talks about favoritism. 
which you can, again, read on your own in your own time. He talks about favoritism and not helping the poor. And he asks a challenging question about someone who would not deal with those issues. He asks a very challenging question. He says, can such a faith save them? Can such faith save them? What he's asking is whether or not Jesus Christ has truly been formed in that person. Whether they have truly understood and received the love of Christ. Whether they have received the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables them to live differently. Martin Luther, who I mentioned a few moments ago, he wrestled with this section of scripture because he feared that this, this passage was contradicting the, the incredible doctrine of grace that Paul, the apostle Paul mentions, that justification is by faith alone through grace alone. And that was a major, major issue that led to the, and rightly so, to the Protestant Reformation. You had parts of the Catholic Church that were claiming that you could be saved if you fought in the Crusades or if you gave money to the Crusade efforts. You had popes claiming that you could, uh, that they would pardon sins or that you could avoid like, you know, worse punishment in purgatory if you would, uh, just do some good deeds. Um, basically it was church corruption. What should have been encouraging Christ followers to live their lives and model their lives after Jesus turned into what we would now call works-based righteousness. So you can kind of forgive Martin Luther for being so hypersensitive to James writing about words, uh, write, you know, writing about words and deeds in the way that he did. However, his contemporary, John Calvin, he really got to the heart of this passage in, a, I think, a much more nuanced and, and healthy way. And I'm not just quoting Calvin to, um, you know, uh, get brownie points with Pastor Alex. This is what Calvin says. He says, when, therefore, the sophists or philosophers set up James against Paul, so he's kind of saying they, they pit them against each other. They go astray through the ambiguous meaning of a term. When Paul says that we are justified by faith, he means no other thing than that by faith we are counted righteous before God. But James had quite another thing in view, even to show that he who professes that he has faith must prove the reality of his faith by his works. By the way, um, this past Valentine's Day, I had someone on Twitter whip me up this little graphic here, um, which combines my love of The Simpsons and ribbing um, John Calvin a little bit. And if you don't get it, you can ask me about it later. Um, if you do get it, we can be good friends. Um, anyway. <laughs> Basically, what John Calvin is not, not in this Valentine, in the quote, what he's saying, is he's saying, stop pitting James against Paul. It's a false argument. It's a non-argument. They're two separate issues. Paul is arguing that, that faith is the means by which we are counted as righteous. And James is arguing that works is the evidence. James is cautioning against what I'm going to call mental assent, that it's possible to believe all the right things, to mentally assent to the reality of who God is, that God revealed himself in Jesus and that Jesus died on the cross and was raised to life. Someone can believe all of those things. Even some of you in this very room, some of you can believe all of those things 
and not have a faith that saves. And that is a scary thought, but that is what James says here. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. The demons believe that. The, the demons know that Jesus is Lord. The demons know that. And they shudder at it. I love the rhetorical intensity that James uses here. It is precise and it cuts to the quick. And when we allow the spirit to, to read us as we read the passage, this is truly convicting. This is truly convicting. James says that you can believe something is true in your mind, but it not be true in reality. For instance, I could tell you this morning, and you might have your doubts off the get-go, but I could tell you that I am a fitness guru. Don't laugh. Do not laugh. <laughs> I could give you a list of all of the things that you must eat and the things that you must not eat. I could tell you, based on kind of your goals, what you should do at the gym or not do at the gym. Um, I, I know of a, a fair amount of that kind of thing. But um, the cheesecake that I ate, ate last night, which was beautifully crafted by Joan Paul or I, um, it says otherwise. <laughs> I can mentally assent to the truths of a fitness guru, but that does not make me one. <laughs> and by the way, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> Again, this just is to illuminate this point, this, this truth that we can mentally believe something while it has done nothing to save us or change us. Alex passed along an article to me this, this week um, with a little interview uh, from Canadian pop star slash budding theologian Justin Bieber, um, who shockingly um, and very aptly sums up this idea in his own faith journey. This is what he says, and, and just excuse, so, like, this is clearly like a conversational, like, so there's some bad grammar, just, it's Justin Bieber, so it's fine. Um, he says this, what, uh, what it talks about in the Bible, there's no faith without obedience. I had had a faith about like, again, excuse the grammar, <laughs> I'm quoting verbatim, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, but I never really implemented it into my life. I was never like, I'm going to be obedient. He continued on. He says, now the way I look at my relationship with God and with Jesus is that I'm not trying to earn God's love by doing good things. God has already loved me for who I am before I did anything to earn and deserve it. That's so cool. So welcome to Cora, right? Where you can hear excerpts from the scriptures, from the, pro from the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, and from the Biebs. <laughs> I'm becoming a little bit of a believer. <laughs> but this is actually a pretty cool way to just see the evidence of someone, you know, this, this at work in someone's life. Where someone would say, I believed the right things, but it had no bearing. It had, it bore no fruit in my life. And that was not really much of a faith at all. And James uses two examples to sort of bolster his argument. He uses the two examples, one of Abraham and one of Rahab. The first quote, he says this, he says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Time doesn't allow me to kind of get into the nuance of all of those stories from the Hebrew scriptures, but the point I trust is clear is that Abraham was considered a righteous man, not simply because he had a faith in God and just sat there and twiddled his thumbs. His faith and his actions worked together. His faith, it says, was made complete, or another way to say it would be that his faith was proven by what he did. Similarly, Rahab displayed this radical faith, but this faith compelled her to act. In fact, even stronger, I would say, than Abraham's example, we see this woman who was invited into the family of God. In fact, a woman who became in the genealogy that you read in Matthew. Incredible, incredible story. Because her actions were seen as a display of faith. It was right at the same time, they happen simultaneously. What we see in these examples is action that is followed so closely behind faith that they are seen as effectively right in, in tandem with each other. What James is ultimately describing here is an integrated life, a, a holistic life, a life where our mind and our body, our soul and our actions are not compartmentalized or dichotomized. There's no duality here. This is a life where our actions are guided by our faith and our faith is bolstered by our actions. It goes both ways. So the question for us to consider this morning, how do we integrate our faith and our action? How, how do we see this seamless integration the same way that Abraham just was, his actions followed right on the heels of his faith? If we want to live in this integrated life, how do we actually do it? I believe that this question really matters. I believe this question mattered to James and it matters to Jesus. In fact, as you read through the book of James, um, you really see a lot of um, common threads between James or between Jesus and the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes through these many, many ways in which um, our faith is lived out. And James extracts wisdom from that. Jesus gives us this example of a real living faith. So if the ideal is that our faith and our action or our faith and our works are in tandem with one another, the truth of the matter is that most of us probably this morning land somewhere closer to one side or the other. Maybe it's not totally like on polar ends of the spectrum, but that usually we're good at one and maybe less good at the other. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a deep faith, but sometimes you struggle to act on it. Others of you might be very action-oriented, but you might not think of yourself as a person of significant faith. Now, there's way more than time allows for this morning, but just to make this simple without being simplistic, what I would say is this. Be aware of what side you uh, give greater attention to. Be aware of what side you err on 
and then turn that around and give greater focus, maybe in this next season of life, give greater focus to your weaker side. For those who struggle not with faith, but with works, this should give us, this passage should give us kind of a kick in the butt. It should give us that little, that little nudge or maybe big nudge that we need to say, I, I, I really need to put my faith into action. Use your gift of faith, because I know that many of you in this church have the gift of faith. So use your gift of faith to pray that the Holy Spirit can and will illuminate where you ought to act. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for the Lord to reveal that to you, because sometimes that can be a process, um, do something. Do something. Uh, if it's not clear to you, just do something that the Bible says is a good thing to do. If it's not sin, um, there's a good chance that this is a really good thing to do. So in the, in the instance of James 2, they talk about not showing favoritism. They talk about giving to the poor, doing, being in community with the poor, being in community with people that are of a different background than you. If that is something that you struggle with, you don't have to wait for God to drop some tablets down from the sky for you to do something. He's, he's already done that it's right in the word and so do something there might be something specific that god has called you to there might be something that you're looking to do that you're like i'm just gonna wait on the lord to receive that Uh, that's wonderful but in the meantime god has revealed so much to us in his word that we can do and go ahead with The purest expression of faith in action, according to Jesus, and then also according to Paul, is love. In Galatians 5, verse 6, Paul says this, that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Jesus declared that the greatest commandment was not not only the love of God, but the love of neighbor. Faith is, exp- is expressed by trust in God. And works is not merely some kind of personal piety or holiness. It is how we live out our faith in community with one another, with the people that we are around each and every day. So that's for those who people who might struggle a little bit more on the action end. For those who maybe are here this morning, and you're like, I'm a really good doer, but I'm maybe not so good of uh, in, in the other areas. I, I maybe struggle with my faith a little bit more. Maybe what you need to hear this morning is that you cannot earn your, or sorry, you cannot earn God's love through your actions. You cannot earn God's love through your actions. God already loves you. You don't, you don't need to do anything. Rest in the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ. If you are a doer, maybe the best thing that you can, that I can tell you to do is to take time out of your day this week to sit in silence and solitude and through prayer and scripture reading, ask God to reveal himself to you in a new way. Ask God to give you a greater faith. God wants to give you the gift of faith. God will give you that gift. You just need to ask. Say, God, give me a greater faith. And that that faith would propel you into even greater action. So whatever you tend toward, 
I want you to pay attention to how God might want to shape you into a fully integrated person where our head and our hearts, our mind and our will, our word and our deed are all one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see this raw humanity of Jesus, his divinity and humanity display fully in that whole Holy Week journey. But in the Garden, we see this humanity peek through, where he wrestles with, being, with putting his action, uh, putting uh, his faith into action. And he says these words in a moment of dread. He says, Father, if you are willing... He's referring to the cross. He says, take this cup from me. Take this away. This is, this is too much for me to do. I can't do it. But then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so he went ahead to the cross. Faith in tandem with action. And he went to the cross where he died for your sin and for mine. And in Jesus' victory over the grave and in the reality of the resurrected Christ, we are now compelled, we are now compelled to live out our faith in a way that is meaningful and tangible. This is a faith that sends us out into our communities as ambassadors for Christ, full of faith, full of action. So by God's grace... May we live a compelling and integrated life, faith and action in tandem. Let's pray. God, in the stillness of this moment, God, would you, would you speak to us? as a whole church, as individuals. Would you allow us to hear how, what, what the next steps are for us here? God, it is so challenging to, to know how to move forward, to know what the best thing for us to do is, to know how to, how to increase our faith, to know how to live in a new way that um, brings our faith into action. God, may we be reminded that this is not all on us. That you are sanctifying us fully and completely. So Lord, may we rest in the truth of the risen Savior. May we seek how to live as your ambassadors out of that place, faith and action in tandem. I pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite Alex.